Welcome back to the Evidence-Based Cardiology Podcast, or Rheumatology Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and today is episode 14, the cardiovascular safety of Fabusistat, or allopurinol, in patients with gout. This was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2018. Now, I'm obviously joking about this being a cardiology podcast, but this is essentially a cardiology trial. It comes with an enormous number of patients, a very well-designed randomized controlled trial, and a correspondingly small absolute risk reduction, which we'll talk about at the end. For background, Fabusistat, or Euloric, which is what I'm going to call it from now on, is a non-purine inhibitor of xanthine oxidase. Like its cousin, allopurinol, Euloric is very effective at reducing the levels of uric acid in the blood, and thereby reducing the incidence of gout flares. After initial trials showing some benefit, some large randomized controlled trials, in particular one in the New England Journal in 2005, Arthritis and Rheumatism in 2008, and the Journal of Rheumatology in 2009 demonstrated its effectiveness, both over placebo and to a lesser degree allopurinol, though I think there's some debate in that area. Now unfortunately, in these trials there was also a suggestion of a modestly higher rate of cardiovascular events with Euloric. For this reason, when the FDA gave them approval, they also told them you're going to have to do a large trial to demonstrate that there's no increased cardiovascular risk. That trial is what we're going to be talking about today. So like I said, this is basically a cardiology trial. It's a large, multi-center, randomized, double-blind, and in this case it was a non-inferiority trial against allopurinol. It was undertaken by Takeda Pharmaceuticals, who are the people who make Euloric, to try to see if there was actually a safety risk in Euloric. Patients were eligible for enrollment if they had a diagnosis of gout fulfilling the American Rheumatism Association criteria and a history of major cardiovascular disease before randomization. What do they mean by major cardiovascular disease? They meant myocardial infarction, unstable angina, stroke, hospitalization for TIA, peripheral vascular disease, or diabetes with evidence of microvascular or macrovascular disease. That's a relatively broad definition of major cardiovascular disease, but also one that I think that most people could get behind. Patients also needed to have serum urate levels that were not at goal. So that was basically over six with some caveats that aren't worth discussing in detail. Patients were then randomly assigned to receive fubusistat or allopurinol in a double-blind fashion once daily. This gets kind of complicated, but in short, the allopurinol doses were adjusted for kidney function. Patients started at 300 and were up titrated to 600, or smaller numbers if they had kidney disease. Because Euloric doesn't have that same concern, Euloric was not modified according to kidney function. Patients were started at 40, and if they did not meet goal, they are increased to 80. Since most of these patients were already on urate-lowering therapy, at the first visit, whatever they're on was discontinued and replaced with the study drug. They were also given colchicine for prophylaxis, and for those who had unacceptable side effects to colchicine, this is generally the GI stuff that we see, they were put on naproxen if their kidneys could tolerate it, and if they couldn't, they were placed on prednisone. The primary implant was a big composite of all sorts of bad things that can happen related to cardiovascular disease. Cardiovascular death non-fatal myocardial infarction, non-fatal stroke, or urgent revascularization for unstable angina. These composite incomes are nice because they lower the power necessary to find an outcome. If you're looking at rare events, you know, cardiovascular death is still a relatively rare event, it's hard to have a trial big enough to find that. If you include a couple other similar or related things, then you can create a composite outcome, which you're more likely to be able to detect. Secondary outcomes were good ones, They're basically all of those things by themselves. 
I spoke recently about how industry studies tend to have very appropriate and well-designed statistical methodology. This trial was no different, and everything that they did was more or less reasonable. People who got into this trial were around 65 years old. There was a significant male predominance, with something like 85% of patients being male. This reflects what we see in gout, where most patients are male. They'd had disease for something like 12 years, had a baseline serum urate level of around 9, and about 1 in 5 had tophaceous disease. This is a pretty good cohort of gout patients. Cardiovascular risk factors are also going to be important. Pretty much everyone had hypertension and hyperlipidemia, and then a lot of them had pretty serious cardiovascular events. Coronary revascularization had happened in almost 40% of patients in both groups. Congestive heart failure was present in 1 in 5, stroke in almost 15%, again in both groups, and peripheral vascular disease in you know, 12 to 13%. So from a cardiovascular perspective, this was a pretty sick cohort. They did that because, again, they're trying to detect rare events. So if you put the kind of people into the study who are likely to have those events, you can have a smaller number of patients. That being said, they needed a lot of patients. So they enrolled 6,198 patients from 320 North American sites from April of 2010 to May of 2017. It's hard to overstate how much work went into this trial. There are a few people who never got the trial medication who were sort of omitted from analysis. So it wasn't a pure intention to treat protocol, but it was only eight out of 6,190. So for all intents and purposes, they used intention to treat for their analysis. Overall, 56% of these patients discontinued therapy. That is a lot of people discontinuing therapy. That's going to present a couple of problems that I'll talk about later. Even more troubling, 45% of patients didn't complete all their visits. Again, that's going to cause a lot of trouble that I'll talk about later. So what did they find? In the composite income, that was the one of cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, or urgent revascularization for unstable angina, they found no statistically significant difference between the groups. In the Euloric group, this happened in 10.8% of patients, and in the allopurinol group, in 10.4%. Looks like they got away with it, right? Not so fast. When you break down that composite endpoint into the individual components, they found that there was actually an increased risk of cardiovascular death, 4.3% in Euloric versus 3.2% in allopurinol. That probably doesn't sound like very much. That's a 1.1% absolute risk reduction. I always find it hard to wrap my head around an absolute risk reduction. And a relative risk reduction, I think, is relatively deceptive. So as I've done before in this podcast, I like to convert absolute risk reductions to the number needed to treat. It's actually pretty simple. You just take 1 and divide it by the absolute risk reduction. So in this case, 1 divided by 0.011 is 91. That means that if I treat 91 patients with euloric instead of allopurinol, one of them would be expected to die. It sounds pretty scary when you think about it. Complicating things further, the other secondary endpoints, such as non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, or urgent revascularization, were not significant. It's kind of strange to imagine that there would be a significant difference in fatal cardiovascular events, but not non-fatal cardiovascular events. That being said, Death from any cause was also statistically significant. In the Euloric group, 7.8% of patients died versus 6.4% in the allopurinol group. Again, that's a 1.2% absolute difference. If you take 1 and divide it by 1.2%, you get 71 for the number needed to treat. They then went on to describe a couple subset analyses that, in truth, aren't really what people are going to be talking about in regards to this study. 
sounds like your Lark was a little bit more effective at treating the urate levels, and it sounds like the gout flare rate was similar between the two groups. Nothing really to see here. There was one interesting secondary analysis that they did that I wanted to note. So among the causes of cardiovascular death, sudden cardiac death was the most prevalent, which occurred in 83 patients, 2.7 in the Euloric group and 1.8 in the Alpurinol group, and perhaps that is what made for the difference. That is something like a 0.9% absolute difference. That would also explain why non-fatal MI was not significant, but then cardiovascular death was. We've always thought that this would be mediated via some atherosclerotic process. Perhaps it's actually an arrhythmia. Before we move on, there's one more interesting thing I wanted to talk about. I think the authors of this trial were a little concerned about how high the dropout rates were. They actually hired a private investigator firm to try to find out what happened to some of the people that left. This firm managed to find 199 additional patients, which is relatively impressive. As it turned out, though, the rates of death from any cause during treatment were consistent with the ones that they saw in their analysis, so at least from what they found, doesn't look like it changes anything. So what do we take home from this? I think before we draw any conclusions, there's a couple of really important caveats. The first is that there was a relatively high rate of discontinuation. 56% of patients had to stop the study drug. Now, this would have been a bigger problem if this trial said there was no difference between the two therapies. You can imagine if someone stops taking the drug, then that would actually favor the null hypothesis. Kind of to put this in context, say you were doing a study of whether or not ice cream or broccoli causes weight gain, and you plan to do it for a month. Well, what if people stopped eating ice cream and broccoli two weeks into the study? You would expect there to be a less of a difference overall. The second and more concerning problem is the loss to follow-up. Again, 45% of patients didn't complete all the visits. This is much more troubling because we just don't know what happened to those patients. We don't know why they didn't get followed up. We don't know whether they died or whether they didn't. And if there are slight differences in the reasons that people dropped out of the study, perhaps that could explain the difference. Trying to get at this, the authors did the private investigator analysis that I talked about. They didn't really find anything, but it's worth noting. Another critique of this study is that we don't have a strong pathophysiologic reason for this to happen. In a lot of the early research on Euloric, they didn't see any increased risk of fatal arrhythmias, they didn't see any QT prolongation, and there really wasn't a whole lot of concern about cardiovascular disease. Then my last, and I think the biggest critique of this study, is that we don't have a placebo group. Why would that matter, you say? We compared allopurinol to Euloric, and it looks like Euloric causes a little bit more cardiovascular mortality. Well, it matters because what if both of them actually cause cardiovascular benefit? We think the patients who have elevated uric acid levels are more likely to have cardiovascular disease. Controlling the uric acid levels may be beneficial. What if the placebo group would have had a rate 5% higher than either of the treatment groups? In that case, it would be that allopurinol decreased your absolute risk by 5% and euloric decreased your absolute risk by 4%. Both of them are beneficial, one just slightly more so. Because there's no placebo group in this trial, we can't know for sure. It does look like allopurinol is better from a cardiovascular outcomes perspective. But if I have a patient who can't take allopurinol for some reason, say they had the allopurinol hypersensitivity syndrome, I don't know what to do. I can't say based on this trial that they should or shouldn't take euloric. It's possible that going on euloric would actually still be beneficial. That is a somewhat rosy take, and I'd like to emphasize one more point, again from our friends in cardiology. The number needed to treat for aspirin to prevent one death in patients who have had a similar cardiac event is 333. The difference between treating someone with euloric or treating someone with allopurinol 
is quite a bit more important from a cardiovascular perspective than the difference between aspirin or not. And I can imagine a lot of us would be pretty hesitant to stop aspirin on someone who had had a heart attack or a stroke, whereas I don't think we've been giving quite as much thought to giving euloric or allopurinol, at least not until this trial. So I see this having a pretty big impact on how people practice going forward. For me, personally, I don't think it'll make too much of a change because the truth is that I tend to use allopurinol as a first-line agent for urate lowering therapy. And in general, I think if you keep pushing allopurinol, it's not very often that you need to use euloric instead. I also think there are some pretty profound flaws with this study. In particular, the fact that 45% of patients did not complete all their follow-up. That, coupled with my aforementioned concerns about the lack of a control group, mean that I'm just not sure if euloric is actually harmful from a cardiovascular perspective or just not as helpful as allopurinol is. So that's it for this week. Before I leave, there are two things I wanted to mention. The first is that the Rheumatology Journal Club will be talking about this very trial this upcoming Thursday, and I really encourage everyone to tune in. The second thing I wanted to do was just to say thank you to everyone who's been sharing the podcast with your friends and downloading and listening. When I started this a couple months back, I had no real idea where it was going to go. I wanted to listen to a podcast like this. It didn't exist, and so I figured I'd try it out. Thanks to everyone like you who's been listening. We went over a 1,000 downloads this week, and I'm personally very excited about that. It's nice to hear that people are enjoying what we're doing, and I really hope that you're finding it useful. So thanks again for tuning in. Be sure to come back next week when I take on my arch nemesis, the ribosomal P, and try to convince you that you should never order it again. Thanks again, everyone. Have a great week.